I don't know if you remember it, but several years ago there was a controversy um, that I was uh, that I was acquainted with. It was a controversy over the body of the famous baseball player Ted Williams. How many of you are in here old enough to remember Ted Williams? Well, I was acquainted with it because my father's brother, my uncle, married Ted Williams' daughter, his first daughter. And so she was involved in this. My uncle was involved. And, and while Ted had, had, uh, had an amazing baseball career, he, he had less than a stellar personal life, to say the least. Uh, he was married three times, had a common-law wife, a, a live-in of about 20 years, and his life was anything but tranquil. And that, that continued even into his death. I can remember the late country preacher B.R. Lakin saying, show me how a man lives and I'll show you how he dies. And that's true with Teddy Baseball. And upon his passing, Ted's son, his only son, contracted with a cryogenics company named Alcor that promised you could live forever. And the way that this would take place is for a certain fee, they would freeze your body in liquid nitrogen, I'm not making this up, preserving you until medical science caught up with, with, with modern technology or advanced beyond what technology was today. And then at that point, the hope is you're preserved, they can bring you back to life. But until that time, you know, you kind of had to hang out in the deep, 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 deep freeze. There was no indication that the process would ever work other than science fiction films and and the cost for this service was over a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, and then there was a yearly maintenance fee. I don't know who they thought would pay the yearly maintenance fee after you're frozen. I guess you had to had to have a a good attorney. I don't know with a with a with a will. But Ted's son, John Henry Williams, who is who's who's now dead himself, he didn't have the money when it came time to freeze Ted. So he didn't have the money to freeze his whole body, so he opted just for Ted's head. I guess they thought if science can restart your body, then they can reattach the, you know, the, the brain to the body. I don't, I don't know. And the whole thing was a mess. The family split over it. There was a lawsuit because in Ted's will, he specifically stated he wanted to be cremated and his ashes scattered over his favorite fishing spot off of the coast of Florida. The company that the Alcor took some of Ted's DNA and presumably sold that on the black market. How much would the DNA of the, the greatest baseball player, arguably, that ever lived, how much would that bring? Pictures emerged with, with Ted's head frozen upside down on top of a tuna can. I kid you not. The company later had significant financial difficulties in and Ted's family, after a long battle, they ended the lawsuit and all but, but one are, are now dead, to, to my knowledge, including my, my uncle's wife. Like John Henry Williams, who started the whole thing, there are many people who look for ways to cheat death. Many people have a desire or the idea of, of finding a way to, to live forever. So they search for for means, whether that's through cryo-freezing or reincarnation or some other type of, 
of religious system. And sadly, sadly, they overlook the one place that tells us how it's possible and they neglect the one person who has the power to make it happen because of the very thing that we're celebrating today. Today I want to take you to a passage in the Bible that not only declares how you can live forever, but answers the question that men have asked, that women have asked throughout history, and that is how can a person be right with God? And it was written over 700 years before Jesus walked on the the earth. We typically, on Resurrection Sunday... Look back at the work of the cross. We're on this side of the work of the cross. 2,000 plus years since, since Christ Himself walked upon the earth, perfectly fulfilled the law, carried out every aspect of, of God's commands. God declaring that while He's not pleased with us, He was completely, totally satisfied and pleased with His Son, making that declaration at, even at His baptism. This same Christ offering Himself freely as a substitutionary sacrifice, death by crucifixion on the cross, buried and rose from the dead. We're on this side of it. We typically look back in in that direction. But I want to show you what it looked like from the other side this morning. What would it have looked like? What would have Christ's death and resurrection looked like from the perspective of the prophets long before he, he came, would the hope of the world be discernible? Or would it just be, you know, I don't know. I mean, that kind of sounds like Jesus, but really the only reason I think it sounds like Jesus is because I've read the New Testament and I have it. Would he be discernible? If all you had, let's ask it this way, if all you had was the Old Testament, could you tell that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Could you tell what His work accomplished? Well, we're going to see indeed He was, as He claimed to be, the Son of God in a passage located in in what most people call, a number of historians have called, the fifth gospel. It's in the book of Isaiah. So I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. Probably a familiar passage to a number of you. As we said, when we come to a familiar passage, we, we plead with the Lord to help us see it afresh. Not that the meaning changes, but that it's easy for us to be so familiar with a passage that we overlook the significance or the importance. And we're parachuting in the middle of the book of Isaiah. And just to oversimplify the book, to tell you where we're at, Isaiah is divided into, into two sections. The first 39 chapters speak of, of judgment that's coming. And then chapters 40 through 66, where our passage is going to be found, speak of, of grace and salvation, the promises that God has made for, for His people and, and for you. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 39, speak of coming judgment and captivity. And, and is Isaiah a trustworthy prophet? Well, yes, he, he, 
he surely was because the Bible declares so, but also you can tell because his prophecies came to pass. Just within less than a hundred years after the book of Isaiah was written, Babylonian captivity took place where the whole southern kingdom of Judah was swept away in judgment, just like Isaiah foretold. The second half of the book of Isaiah, which is, again, where our passage is found, chapter 40 through 66, the theme is is God's promise of, of grace and salvation. And that comes through His servant. God's servant who will come, who will offer up his life a ransom and will, and will rise from the dead. As I said, Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel for a number of reasons. And it's because the presentation of Jesus Christ is so clear. And, and the idea that, 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 that the gospel is there is not new. It goes all the way back to, to the 300s, late 300s. Augustine said, it's not a prophecy, it's a gospel speaking of this section that we're going to look at. Martin Luther said of the passage that we'll look at this morning, every Christian ought to be able to repeat it by heart. That's how clear it is, how significant it is. And that's because of how detailed and unmistakable the references are to Jesus Christ. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 40, where where it all starts. Look at how this section on... When the promise of grace and salvation begins, right after the Babylonian envoys that that come, Isaiah speaks and says in verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for for all our sins. Comfort. He's speaking comfort. Why, how can you find comfort in the midst of captivity? Well, look at verse 3. The comfort He is promising is being initiated. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway of our, of our God. And you know, if you've been around any period of time, Preaching, that's the prophecy concerning John the Baptist. John the Baptist would come in the spirit of, a, of Elijah and he would prepare God's people for the Messiah that would, that would come. John was the, was the forerunner. And how does the New Testament Gospels begin? They begin with John the Baptist coming, proclaiming, repent. The kingdom of, of, of God is at hand. Meaning that the Messiah is coming on the, on the scene. And the second half of Isaiah beginning here begins the same place that the New Testament does. And it's no coincidence. Because the Gospels in the New Testament and the prophet Isaiah are speaking of the exact same person. And that person is Jesus Christ. All 700 years before it was fulfilled. And that's easy whenever you're, when you're talking in, in, in dates like that. You know, 10 years I can grasp, 30 years, I don't know, 100 years, it kind of gets lost. 700 years. Think of it this way. That would be the equivalent. If, if you were living in Isaiah's day, it would be equi- the equivalent of giving someone a prophecy in 1300 A.D. and it being fulfilled today. 
That's 200 years before Columbus came, a prophecy. That's 200 or 300 years before Jamestown. And the prophecy that Isaiah gives is, is incredible. It's, it's so clear, so detailed in its prediction and its fulfillment that it's completely impossible unless you intentionally want to deny. It's completely impossible to deny that it, who it speaks of or, or question its, its accuracy, although some people do. Jesus himself referred to the passage that we'll look at, the apostles as well as the other New Testament writers. References to Isaiah 53 are found in, are you ready for this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. You think it's a pretty important passage? Amen. <laughs> it is, as some have called it, the Mount Everest of the prophets. The passage that we'll look at in beginning in Isaiah 52 is, is, is the fourth of what's called a servant song or, or a statement about this servant who would come, who is the Messiah. He'll be God's slave. He'll be God's servant accomplishing the work that the Father sent him to, to do. And the theme of this prophetic message begins all the way back in In chapter 42, it's massive. 116 verses, just in the heart of the prophecy of itself. 116 verses, 3,621 words covering 10 chapters, and that's just the heart of it. And all of it is the presentation of the gospel of God's substitutionary servant. Each verse prophesying, declaring of an anointed one. The servant of God who would come. Who'd come in a very specific way to do a very specific work. If we would go back and trace from chapter 40 on, you, you would find that, that chapter 42 that declares the servant will be provided. Chapter 49, the servant is commissioned un, unto his task. Isaiah chapter 50, Israel's sin is presented for the reason the servant's suffering. And his righteousness is contrasted with, with, with their sin. Chapters 51 and 52, the first half of 52, there's, there's a call to listen. There's a call to wake up. We sang a song this morning. College group started. Awake. Awake from sleep. Awake and depart. And here at the end of chapter 52, the work of the servant is presented. He's promised. He's commissioned. The reason that he comes has already been given, and and here his work will be detailed. And it begins with an interesting word. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. Look at how it begins. You see how it begins, that first word in verse 13? Behold. You see that? Behold my servant. Behold my servant, and then he goes in to describe some things about his servant. And then look at verse 1 of Isaiah 53. The sin-bearing servant, his work, what he will do, begins in verse 13 of chapter 52 and continues on through chapter 53. Look at how chapter 53 begins. Who has believed 
Who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the, the arm of Yahweh been, been revealed? Behold, my servant, who has believed our report? The Lord up to this point has been simply promising and sending and showing why the servant must come and how his work will be profitable. But now, as he gets ready to present the servant's work, what he will accomplish on your behalf, on my behalf, he says, Behold, look, focus, cast your eyes this way, look at the work of, of my servant, and as you do, believe. Who has believed this report? Who's believed our message? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 16 quotes this verse when it talks about how will they, how will they believe unless someone goes and, and tells them. Romans 16 quotes this very verse, who has believed our report. Romans 10, 16 says, not everyone will believe. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. So get ready to hear the gospel. And behold, and believe. It's the same thing that John does in 1 John. A lot of people say they don't like 1 John because it, there's just no wiggle room. You know, if we say we, we, we have no sin, if we say something we, is not sin, we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth, I mean, there's just no wiggle room in, in James or, or, in, or in 1 John. But listen to how 1 John begins. That which was from the beginning, or... Speaking of Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Our hands have handled the word of life. That which we have seen, that which we have beheld, that which you've seen and heard, we declare unto you. Why? That you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You heard Pastor Brody read from the book of Acts. He is both Lord and Christ. The same message that the apostles are preaching. The same message that Isaiah is declaring. The same message that Jesus was proclaiming. The same thing that the apostles are saying after Jesus is gone. Behold, behold Christ, who He is and what He's accomplished, what He has done, and believe. And God says the same thing to, to us this morning. Behold my servant. And then ask the question, who's believed what he has accomplished? There's a lot of different ways you can break Isaiah 53 down. You break it down by the death, the burial, and the resurrection, which is clear. And we'll, I'll show you those, those aspects as we go through the, the text this morning. But I want to show you how God presents the work of His saving servant from three different angles this morning. God's presentation of the of His saving and suffering servant that you might behold and that you might believe. And the first angle is He presents the portrait of His servant. He presents the portrait of His servant. Look at Isaiah 53, verse, verse 2. Who has believed our report? To whom has, has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? 
For he, that is the servant, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has, he has no stately form or kingly presence, no comeliness, as the King James says. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. God begins here with a picture of His servant. How would you recognize the servant? Last week we looked at the triumphal entry that didn't end too triumphant in the book of Mark, right? I mean, here is Jesus, the raising of Lazarus. Everybody is all jacked up because of Passover and the crowds and the throngs. And Lazarus has risen from the dead. And Jesus comes from Bethany and Bethpage, the back part of the Mount of Olives. And He, he tops the hill and where He has... He's tamped down the crowd and said, don't tell people that I've healed you. Don't, don't declare who I am now. He is invoking the crowd's participation and praise. As Zechariah declares in 9.9, he, he, he gets on the, the colt and he, he, he comes down the Mount of Olives as they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David. This is the Messiah. He's here. He crosses the Kidron Valley. He goes back up the other side. He goes through the gate, beautiful, into the temple, presenting Himself as the King and nothing. He looks around and Mark says he, he leaves. How was Israel to recognize they're the servant that Isaiah speaks of. He tells us what the servant will look like, what the servant will be like, and how he'll come in this portrait. Then the portrait shows the humiliation of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a common understanding that one of the reasons the Jews missed him, besides the hardness of heart, just the practical aspects, they were looking for a great conquering king that would overthrow the Romans. You remember in Galilee, those of you who went on the Israel trip, and we, when we, we stood at Bethsaida, and you could see Gamla off in the distance, the stronghold of the zealots, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, they're saying, here He is. I mean, this is the guy. I mean, the, the hotbed of zealots in Galilee, our king, He's going to lead us to Jerusalem, and we're going to conquer the Romans. And Jesus slips out from their midst and sends the disciples away so they don't get caught up in, in that movement. If you would have looked at the way Jesus Christ came, He didn't come as some conquering king, not the first time. He came in humiliation. And Isaiah says He'll be born in lowly circumstances. Verse 2, He shall grow up before Him, that's God, as a, as a tender plant. It's the idea under the radar of the world, but never out of the eye of God. He'll grow up before God. The Father will know every single aspect of His life. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 says, The Lord was born in Bethlehem. Thou Bethlehem, the land of, of Judah... Are you not the least of the princes of Judah? Out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Fulfilling Micah 5.2. He was raised a carpenter's son, not a king. Matthew 1.16. He was reared in Nazareth. 
Matthew 2.23. Matthew 2.23, And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, that he should be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was a, was a lowly place. It's likely that, that it was so small, just a few hundred people lived there. Jesus had to go to, to Zippori, or Sephorius, probably, different times for, for work. Nazareth's not the place that, that you would want to, to notice your hometown. Maybe where you were from. But even that was bad. A Nazarene. Portrait shows that he'll be born in lowly circumstances, just as the New Testament declares. And, and he's also going to come in a, in a humble form. He shall grow up in verse 2 before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or, or majesty, comeliness, no beauty that we should desire Him, no appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Jesus didn't come in a form when people would lay their eyes on Him, at least not the first time, and go, wow, there He is, that would have to be Him. means he'll not be exalted royalty whenever he comes. He won't whenever he comes. He won't wear kingly robes. He'll come in a in a lowly form. Can you get any lower in the way that that he was born? He'll not present himself as king, but but he'll be recognizable only to those who who are looking by faith. He'll meet the requirements of Deuteronomy 17:14 that Israel violated whenever they whenever they chose Saul. You see him, if you would have seen him, you would not have picked him. Yeah. You know, do you have memories whenever you were a kid of, uh, of pickup football games or baseball or wherever it is, and you got the two captains, and you're lined up there, and you know you're the last guy probably that's going to be picked, and it's just you and, you know, Egbert over here who's waiting to be picked. Okay. The presentation is the way that Christ... He wouldn't have been the first guy picked. The way He presented Himself. The way that He came. If you were looking for the Son of God who had come in the flesh, you, you would have picked a stately man. Probably one who looked handsome. Think of the prophet that, that went for, for David. Samuel. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab. So we look on the outward, and yet God looks upon the, upon the heart. We would have probably looked for a stately man, a handsome man, someone seemed who's able to deliver. We would have chosen a great warrior, not a man who, who came from nowhere special. God's servant was lowly. Jesus ate with sinners, it was said. He fraternized with tax collectors. He touched unclean lepers. He lifted up the head of adulteresses. He knew the people that other people wanted to forget. He did things that the proper religious king seemingly would not do. And he got called on it a number of times, didn't he? He said of himself in Matthew eight twenty, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. No palace, no treasury. I mean, he's a wanderer. He was a man tempted, the Bible says, in all points, 
as we are yet without sin. Portrait shows how he'll come. It shows he'll be acquainted with grief and sorrow and that he'll be despised and rejected. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And we hid it were hid as it were our faces from him. No one knew who he was, and and most that that heard rejected. He was rejected in his own town. It says he couldn't do many mighty works in Nazareth. He came from a lowly town, and even the lowly town rejected him. The Bible says he was rejected by his own people. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He was one, whenever he did good works, the miracles that he did, the the religious leaders, his own people said he performs that by the power of Satan. I mean, it's... It's bad enough for us not to get recognized. I mean, we, we say we don't want recognition, but we do something good, something selfless. feels good when someone acknowledges that. Here, Jesus performed something miraculous, and they won't even attribute it to God. It was the devil. He sorrowed and wept over Jerusalem, even as we saw last week, because they missed their time of visitation. And it says here, and we, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was mocked and accused of things they didn't commit. Matthew 27, verses 29 is one of those examples. The crowd that sang Hosanna one day showed up to watch him die a week later. As they walked by, they mocked him. When a choice was given between him or a known sinner, he was rejected in the place of a murderer, Barabbas. They said to him on the cross, if you are the Son of God, come down and save yourself. He was despised, he was rejected, a man acquainted with rejection. And yet he cried from the cross after all of that, Father, forgive them. But they know not what they do. Lowly born, humble in appearance, despised and rejected servant, although unrecognized by most, he would do a great work. And he is held up to you all Israel and the world to behold and believe. God gives this portrait of, of His servant. Then He moves from the portrait of how He's going to come into what He will do, the passion of the servant. God prevent, presents the passion. Isaiah shows not only what He will be like, but now the work that He will do. Look, if you would, at verse 4. This verse serves as a transition from who he was, how he would come, to to what he would do. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne. Now this is 700 years before it ever took place, but here it is spoken of in in past tense. It's a a prophetic purpose, a prophetic purpose. Perfect. I'll get it out in a minute. Stated in the past tense as if it has already taken place. Surely He has accomplished this. Surely He's done it. It's as if it is as good as accomplished. 
in verses 5 through 10a, you have the, the detail, blow-by-blow blow work of, of the servant, of the Messiah. Will God just be a good God and a gracious God and sit in heaven and one day, you know, just said, you know, I just, I'm just going to forget. I'm tired of holding this justice over human beings. Yeah, they're sinners. Yeah, they do the wrong thing. But I'm just going to let bygones be bygones and move along. Is that how God's going to accomplish it? And Isaiah shouts from the rooftops, No. Someone must pay. And the servant was sent by the Father as the Savior to pay. The whole work of the Gospel is presented here. You have the crucifixion, you have the burial, and you have the resurrection of Jesus 700 years before, plus years before it took place. Detailed. Because the passion of the servant begins in verse 5. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by a stripe, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh, the Lord, has laid on him. Unbelievable. He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded, literally pierced. He was bruised, literally crushed. He was scourged, striped, oppressed, afflicted. Back in chapter 52, verse 14 says, His appearance was marred more than, than any man. Now that's Isaiah. Listen to Matthew. Chapter 26. And then they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. This is at the trial of the, of the Sanhedrin. As each single one files before the Lord, each one in the declaration. Their declaration is the Sanhedrin that he's a blasphemer. Each one of the religious leaders walked by, spit in his face, and some slapped him. One after the other, after the other, after the other, each signing their name with their own spittle to the fact that he is a blasphemer in their mind. Matthew 27, verse 22, And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. Matthew 27, verse 26, And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified, and they stripped him. Verse 28, verse 29 through 31. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit upon him. It's the second time that it's recorded that Christ was spat upon once by the Jews and once by the Gentiles. How God has delineated the world. The Jews sign their declaration that Christ is nothing more than a blasphemer. He's not the Messiah. And the Gentiles sign by their own spit 
that He's the same. And they took the reed and smote Him on the head. And after they mocked Him, they took the robe off Him and put His raiment on Him and led Him away to crucify Him. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted in verse 4. Yet He opened not His mouth in verse 7. And we're coming, we're coming to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was silent. He didn't defend Himself. He didn't say, guys, what are you doing? I'm your king. You would treat me that way. I come for you. He opened on his mouth. It was dumbfounding to Pilate. Matthew 27, verses 13 and 14, Then Pilate said unto him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Don't you understand? They're reading to you the record that will condemn you, and you answer none of their accusations. And he didn't answer him regard to a single charge, so that the governor marveled greatly. Pilate would later say, Do you, have you not heard what they've said? He would say later, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and to release you? And Jesus was silent. Look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? Death. He's going to follow after him. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he died. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave, as it were, with the wicked. They assigned him with the wicked. Jesus was crucified with two criminals. There's so many things that you could... You can see where, where the religious leaders tried to deny who Christ was. And, and, and God, with His great declaration, using even, even the Romans, saying, King of the Jews. And here, they have Him crucified with two criminals, and the religious leaders try to align Him with thieves. But, but even the two thieves on the cross... One testifies of his ignorance and one proclaims his deity. Luke 23. One of the criminals who was crucified was hurling abuses at him. And the other one said, Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Don't you understand, man? You're getting ready to die. What are you doing? He says, Indeed, we are suffering justly, but... We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even, even a thief, even a condemned man knew that Jesus was innocent. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not a, not a, a rabbi or a prophet moral compass that you can follow in life. What WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's how I'm going to live my life. He was the Son of the living God. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. 
knew who he was. Do you know who he is? He was with a rich man at his death. They try to make his grave with the wicked. They try to associate him with the wicked in verse 9, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any, any deceit in his mouth. He was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, verse 57. When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, begged the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped him in a clean linen cloth and laid him in his own new tomb. 700 years before it ever was declared. Before it ever happened, it was declared. And all of this passion was for a purpose. The physical sufferings of Christ were great. The humiliation of Christ was great. The physical suffering and humiliation cannot accomplish your salvation. All of the passion was for a purpose, and that was to make atonement for our sin. Look back, if you would, at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, our iniquities, our chastisement, our sorrow. Verse 6, why is He a substitute for our transgressions, our iniquities, our chastisement, our need for healing from sin? Well, verse 6 answers the question, all we like sheep have have gone astray. We've turned Everyone to his own way. Everyone to his own way. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever been born since the fall has been born living after his own way, a rebel. Acknowledging God whenever God is needed, but for the most part living however they want to live. When the, when the law has been declared, when right and wrong, that your conscience... Uh, um, gives testimony to when, when the, the morality that's written on your heart, when, those, when, the, when the light goes off, the smoke detector, siren sounds, you know that you have been like a sheep and have, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. Three times. All of us, everyone, us all, all we've like sheep, everyone has turned. Same thing Romans says, right? There's none that doeth good. There's none righteous. No, not one. Corky, that's right. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, bears the sin and shoulders the consequences and wrath. What are the consequences? for a finite being? What are the consequences for a creation to thumb their nose in the face of an infinite, holy, righteous, good Creator? What are the consequences? Well, the Scripture declares it's wrath. And here, the phrase declares God's provision for His wrath. 
the end of verse 6, And Yahweh the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God treated Christ as if He'd committed every sin ever committed by every believer, even though He was perfectly innocent of any sin. That's substitution. So that wrath could be spent, so there wouldn't be any wrath left for, for God to pour out on us as sin. Justice could be satisfied so He could give to the account of sinners the righteousness of God, treating them as if they'd done only the righteous acts of Christ. That's justification. Sin paid for, righteousness credited, counted, even though we're unrighteous. God treats you and treats me, those of us who are in Christ, as if we're righteous even though we're not, on the basis of Christ. Alien righteousness. Righteousness that is outside of ourselves. Accomplished by Jesus. Credited to our account. So, here's how He's coming and here's His work. Was His work successful? How do we know it was successful? How do we know that as we read in Matthew this morning that that that's just not a Christian tale? This guy really was just a, a traveling rabbi and paid off the guards to steal his body away. What does God have to say about that? It's found in the third angle. It's presented. It's God's pleasure in His servant. Was He successful? He was. He was. Look at verse 10. Begins talking about the pleasure of Yahweh, God being pleased. The first part of verse 10 is a transition to the rest. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. I mean, when I read that verse, and I look at my notes, and I've got written down, this is one of the most shocking verses in all the Bible. It should take my breath away. I have to plead with the Lord to help me grasp what He's saying here. The word means to take pleasure in something. It's used in Ezekiel 18, verse 32, where God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith the Lord God. Or for repent and live. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of sinners. God says, I don't don't take any pleasure in the fact that, that sin, when it entered into the world, brings forth death, and death is judgment. I take no pleasure in that. God's not sitting up in heaven going... There, that sinner got exactly what he deserved. I'm glad he died. God takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. But look at verse 10. God took pleasure to crush Christ. He takes no pleasure in your death as a sinner, but he was completely satisfied in the death of his son for the sinner. The portraits of his, of his life climaxes this passion on the cross and his death. And that's for the satisfaction of God's wrath. If he would render his soul, that's Christ, an offering for sin, that's your sin, 
Verse 11, he will see it, that is God, and be satisfied. That's atonement. The son was successful. Two times in the verse it's mentioned God's pleasure to bruise him. And look at the end of verse 10. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You say, Pastor Brian, preacher, I can't. You're right. But Christ did. He was successful. He didn't fail before God, though we already have. And as the Bible declares, those who will believe upon Him, those who put their trust in His work, will not be put to shame. God is saying, believe on my Son, and I'm not going to pull the rug out from under you. You put your weight on the work of Christ and stand there, And I will receive it. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, be satiated, be propitiated. And because of that, we receive the benefits, the healing from sin and peace, atonement, satisfaction, Verse 5, verse 10, verse 11, justification. Verse 12, intercession. And because of His work and God's pleasure in it, Jesus will rise from the dead. He shall see His seed and shall prolong His days. Future. He was offered as a sacrifice. He was buried, and now the text declares he has a future. How do you have a future if you if you're dead? Because the grave will not hold him. He was the first fruits. You ever met somebody who came back from the grave? I have. His name's Jesus Christ. God confirmed His pleasure and satisfaction in Christ's priestly work and declared Him to be exactly who He said He was by raising Him from the dead. Paul says, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we, we are miserable people. And our faith is worthless. We might as well pack it up. We might as well go home. The resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was His servant, accomplished His purpose, And if you come to Him, you will have a living Savior. Not a dead sage. You follow any religion in the world, and you'll follow a holy man who is dead, or who is going to die. But Jesus Christ is alive forevermore, and you will be too if you look to Him. Do you know one day God will confirm the work that He began in you at salvation by raising you from the dead. You will be raised to, to life or you will be raised to meet the second death. 
Christ was raised. There's a declaration. And God will rightly exalt him. Look at verse 12. Here's the exaltation of Christ. Therefore, therefore, because of he does this great work, because it satisfies the Father, the Father receives it. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I will allot a portion with the great, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father this very moment at a place of honor, awaiting the trumpet. And at His return, He will gather His portion, the church, and then later will come the coronation, when not just the church, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is to the glory of the Father. Why? Why will every knee bow and every tongue confess? Why has the Father given the Son that kind of position in heaven? Verse 12 answers it. Why? Because He poured out His soul unto death, and He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's why Christ has the centerpiece in, in heaven. If you missed it, that's you. The intercession for transgressors. That's me. And God will glorify Jesus for all eternity because He was the Lamb who was slain. 700 years before He came, God prophesied and declared that what he would do. And he begins this whole thing with behold. And he says, believe. Who has believed the Lord's report? Have you believed the Lord's report? That's an old book. It's just an Easter sermon. Behold, my servant. Here's how it comes. Here's what He'll do. Here's the pleasure that I have in Him and in Him alone. If you're placing your trust in anything other than the finished work of Christ, as we sang, your life is on sinking sand. Behold and believe. You say, how? Turn over to Isaiah 55 and we'll end with this. Because here's the invitation in Isaiah 55 that he gives. Behold, ask the question, who's believed? Romans says not everyone has, but faith will come as you hear the gospel, as you behold. How? How? How can I live forever? I can live forever. You can live forever because because Christ died and rose from the dead. How can you be made right with God on the basis of Christ alone? How can you come? Look at verse 1 of chapter 55. Everyone who thirsts, so everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm thirsty. Water is what would quench my thirst. But it doesn't stop there. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. What? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied, will be filled. He who thirsts. Those of you who are sitting here knowing that there's nothing in your life, that there's something missing, that you've tried other ways and other things, and, and there is a thirst. He says, come to the living waters. Come to the waters. You say, but I have nothing to offer God. God says, come, you have no money. God knows you have nothing to offer Him. And He says, come and buy and eat. And not just water, but wine and milk without money, without price. And then He asks the question, look at verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why did I live 24 years of my life chasing after paying my life for things that don't satisfy? Why do you do that today? Look at verse 2. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its, its abundance. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Here, and your soul shall live. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. He can be found today. Call upon Him while He's near. He's, He's near today. Let the wicked, that's you, forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That means repent. You say, I have nothing to offer God. God's not asking anything from you. He exacted the full penalty and the full price from His Son, and He just simply says to you, Behold and believe. Will you behold? Will you believe? Will you who are wicked turn from your ways? Run into the arms of the Son who has the marks of the slaughter still upon Him. Who doesn't cry with judgment from the cross but says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Let's pray. said there's about 300 separate segments of 20 religions in the world. In addition to that, there are countless tribal and traditional and cultic forms. Millions upon millions of personal beliefs. And yet, the Bible declares there is one way to God. And you've heard it today.